Hi there, and welcome to the Sanctuary Podcast. Our vision is to find sanctuary in Christ, and then to be sanctuary to each other, and express sanctuary to this city. And so, for us, success is loving well, one person at a time. And if we can help you in any way, please do feel free to reach out, jump onto our website, sanctuarysf.com, and we would love to connect. Anyway, back to the podcast. You can open your Bibles to 1 Peter 1, uh, verses 3 through 9. Uh, we'll be uh, going back and forth between 1 Peter 1 and 2 Peter 1 this morning. Uh, 1 Peter 1, beginning with verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, You have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Let's pray. Dear Father, we are thankful for your word, we're thankful for the gospel, we're thankful for the confidence that we have in you and in our future. Uh, Father, I pray specifically for the Shaws this morning, uh, for Tom and for Josie and for the girls, that there would be a sense of accomplishment that they would feel uh, in their faithfulness in the work that they've done. Uh, They, uh, like Paul, like Apollos, have uh, planted, have watered, and they leave it to you to grant increase. Um, They have seen some increase, um, but we believe in much more. Father, I pray that they would feel a release uh, from you, for something new, uh, even though they don't know exactly what that is, um, would there be a sense of freedom and lightness that would come over them as they trust you for the next season? Father, I pray for joy. Um, I pray for comfort. I pray for confidence. Uh, We love them so much. We are so thankful for your sovereignty and the way that you choose to build your church. And it's such a meandering uh, journey. Um, But in that, we got to meet and know and be known and love and be loved um, by the Shaws. Um, What a a gift that is uh, to us. Um, 6,000 miles uh, were across to be able to make us friends, and we're grateful. I pray 
uh, that you would bless these next months, uh, that you would go ahead of them, um, and there would be much confidence, much joy, much peace. We love you, and we love them. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. When Tom asked me to preach, he, he told me that he uh, would be announcing their return to Britain right before the sermon. And because of that, I took the preparation a little more seriously because this is a sacred moment in the life of sanctuary. And not only that, a sacred moment for each of you. Um, there are lots of layers to today's news, right? Um, different layers for different people. And I, I can't even begin to imagine what they are. Today obviously holds a lot of meaning for the Shaws, uh, for Tom, Josie, Daisy, Lily, and Poppy, who've given so much to San Francisco and to Sanctuary, um, who've given different things, and they're all returning to the UK as different people uh, and, and not even sure exactly what that will be like. Um, this moment holds meaning for Sanctuary as an organization, as a church with a mission, um, a body of believers, a family. It, it affects you together. It holds unique significance for her leaders who are responsible for discerning the future and navigating it faithfully. As a fellow pastor in the city, um, I can attest to you that today holds significance for the wider church of San Francisco um, and throughout the Bay Area who have benefited so much from the Shaw's presence um, it holds meaning for me personally. Tom is truly my best friend in the city. And so uh, that's a big deal <laughs> um, to uh, San Francisco, to life in San Francisco. Uh, friends are few and far between, close friends. Uh, sanctuary is also the most kin to citizens as a church and philosophy and life stage where there's a lot of connection between us, um, just on other sides of the city. And of course, I know it holds unique meaning for each of you as individuals in your faith stories. Uh, that's a lot of meaning, a lot of layers, um, but healthy relationship, healthy living requires that we hold and honor all those meanings and layers simultaneously. We just have to um, hold on to them. Uh, today's news has lots of implications, uh, and some of you might be the type of persons that are, are sort of been thinking through implications constantly. Uh, some known, mostly unknown. Uh, we know the future is shifting, but we don't know how. And so you put all that together, and it's a lot. And needless to say, Tom owes me a drink for scheduling me to preach <laughs> on a morning like today. We're like, what is, how do we, how do we speak into this situation, right? Um, of course, I am kidding. I am honored to preach on such a sacred day. I deeply love Tom and Josie uh, and the Shaws. Uh, God has used Tom to encourage me many, many times over the past four years, and I will continue to depend on him for that. Josie has been a lifeline to Maggie. Um, and I love Sanctuary Church. Uh, it gives me great joy to think about learning one day in glory all of the fruit, the eternal fruit that has sprung up from ministry um, at this church um, that you all have had, the gospel impact that you've had, uh, particularly in Portola and in this quadrant of the city. Uh, there, are there are people that have heard the gospel from you that would not have heard the gospel from anyone else. Um, and so I am thankful. Uh, and last, I truly do love each of you. I don't know you, um, but I deeply, deeply love the Church of San Francisco. 
um, have a strong affection, and you are members of that church. Uh, you are my fellow San Franciscan brothers and sisters. And so I believe convictionally in the Spirit's presence in you, in your giftings, in your callings, in your place in this city, and I am hopeful for what God has in store for you. I earnestly desire your faith's flourishing in San Francisco. Um, that is my highest hope, is that your faith would flourish, and I believe from that the gospel would uh, double, triple, grow a hundredfold. As I was praying for you all and have been asking the Lord what to say, the Spirit early on impressed upon me the word confidence. What should I preach on? I should preach on confidence. And to be honest, I tried to shoehorn an old sermon into today because just, clear, uh, just full disclosure, that's what pastors do when they guest preach is they try to work an old, old sermon in there. But I really just like couldn't shake this word. And so my sermon today uh, won't be a typical expositional sermon. It's just what I have to say, and I hope it serves you. As you embark on a new sermon series, defining your church's culture and values, which is my understanding for the series, it is vitally important that your church and every church and every Christian begin from a place of confidence. Humble, hopeful, happy, playful confidence. In fact, it is so important for you that God has orchestrated this very circumstance in your life. That's how important it is. Of course, he is doing so much more. In any one life event, God being God is always accomplishing thousands upon thousands of things. We can't possibly articulate it. He's never just doing one thing, but rest assured, one thing that he is always doing through difficulty, through trial, through change, one thing he always wants to accomplish in you and in us is increased confidence in him. He wants you today, along with all of his saints, to live lives marked by confidence befitting the children of God. Ask yourself, how confident should the child of God be? How confident is too confident? We judge confidence based on what one's confidence rests in. And so how confident should the Christian be today? Should we be followers of Jesus in San Francisco? Well, God is God. Jesus is Jesus, resurrected and seated at God's right hand. His word is living and active. His spirit indwells and surrounds us. Yes, there is sin. Yes, there's suffering. Yes, there's Satan. All true. But against all that stands the gospel of Christ, which is the power of God for salvation to all who believe. And so honestly, what could possibly be the limiter on the church's confidence in God and in his purposes? And if there is no limiter on the church's confidence in God, how then should we leave? How should we do church? How should we leave? How, how should we make decisions? We should do it confidently humbly, hopeful, happy, playful. It is my prayer that sanctuary and citizens and the Church of San Francisco would be marked by confidence, a confidence which is not based in circumstance, a confidence which doesn't rest on size or wealth or sophistication or personality, a confidence which is not found in our plans or strategies or on our commitment level, our obedience even, None of those things can carry the weight of our needs 
and questions and fears. Only one kind of confidence will keep the church moving forward. And I have in mind a twofold confidence, a confidence in God and in eternity. God and eternity. This is a confidence which takes the extreme long view, right? A confidence which looks thousands of years back, before time itself, to God's triune character and his sovereign redemptive plan as revealed in Scripture. And then it looks thousands of years ahead to the completion of that plan in glory secured by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that confidence can be quite detailed, thick, like a systematic theology book, or it can be very, very simple. My favorite definition of faith is found in Hebrews 11.6. Whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. It's this beautiful, simple definition of faith. What is the bare minimum of confidence that keeps us going, even when we can't claim very much, even when things are very dark and we don't know what the future holds. Can we believe this, that God exists and that he rewards those who seek him? Can we believe and be confident in God and in eternity? This is the pattern of encouragement in the New Testament. Before we ever get any practical instruction in the letters, apostles remind us of the confidence available to us in Christ. And so I'm using First and Second Peter as an example today, but nearly every apostolic letter written to the churches follows this order of presentation. Sort of behind the letter, the churches have somehow asked the apostles for advice. And we, so we don't exactly know how, but the apostles realize the church needs advice. They need practical instruction. That's the reason for the letter. So they write back. But before they give any counsel, before they give any instruction whatsoever about the various difficulties and questions that the church has, they always begin with faith. They always begin and ground their counsel in the confidence of God. It's where they begin and it's where we should begin. As, as you think and wonder and strategize about what is the future direction of Sanctuary Church, as individually you think and strategize and wonder what is the future direction for me in this city or wherever we might be, we begin first with confidence and faith in God. Um, I'm going to cheat and have you look at 2 Peter 1. So if you could flip to 2 Peter 1 and we'll look at this beginning. Uh, the book of Second Peter was written to a church struggling to win the battle against false teachers in their midst. Uh, they were struggling with holding true to the faith once delivered to all the saints. And so how does Peter begin in this situation? Second Peter 1.3, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. That is such a wild statement. When we think about all when I think about my own heart and what I feel like I need and how I'm, I regularly think that I need something else. And Second Peter begins that God's divine power has granted to me all things that pertain to life and godliness. First of all, let me remind you that you have everything you need. Whatever difficulties you're facing in sanctuary or otherwise, let Peter's confidence wash over you. Remind yourself that we have everything we need. God's divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. How? How do we have everything we need? Through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, 
That is, through knowing Jesus, through faith, by which we are saved. 2 Peter 1.4, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them, through the promises, you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. We have everything we need in Jesus. Now in the next verse, verses, it kind of looks like Peter leaves behind faith and moves on to works. And so sometimes I can read these passages and be pretty intimidated and weighed down, right? For this very reason, that because you have everything that you need in life and godliness through faith in Christ, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. I don't know about you, but I can sort of feel my like shoulders getting heavier as I read those verses. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so again, before we say anything, can we just pause and talk about what a wild promise verse 8 is? If these qualities are yours and are increasing, they will keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's an amazing statement. And it's not even like a charge. It's just a statement of fact. He's like, hey, if you've got these qualities, you will be completely effective and fruitful. Later in verse 10, he says, if you practice these qualities, you will never fail never fail. Maybe this should be our church's growth strategy, right? <laughs> like, as maybe I need to take this and, and wipe away Citizens' website and just put this up there, right? Seriously, let's just work on this list and see what happens. And if we do, though, I think my point still stands that faith, confidence, is still our main object- objective, that that is actually the purpose for all of these qualities, is to build and shore up faith. We are saved by grace through faith, not of works. And that's Peter's point. How do I know? In verse 9, he says, For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. What does it mean when these qualities are not true of us? It doesn't mean that we need to work harder. It means that we need to believe that we have forgotten. How will we be ineffective and unfruitful as a church? How will we fall when we forget that we've been cleansed from our former sins? The only objective of the Apostle Peter to this church is that they would remember Jesus, that they would remember the gospel of grace, that they have been cleansed that they have been forgiven. This dramatic list of virtues in 2 Peter chapter 1, it's not there as a replacement for faith, but to supplement it, to shore it up, to protect it. If faith is so important, if faith is what saves us, if it is the means through which we are saved, then let's orchestrate our lives in such a way to build up that faith to shore it up and protect it. Why be virtuous? Why pursue knowledge? Why have self-control? So that I remember the gospel to the end of my life. In verse 11, for in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
Again, God and eternity. Uh, going back to chapter 1 of 1 Peter, this is why this sermon's so disorganized. I'm just having you like bounce around from place to place. Um, but 1 Peter chapter 1, it was written to a church, the same church, who was facing hostility from the outside. And so there was a lot of unity within, but they were suffering persecution. And it was kind of a soft persecution, so they were not being thrown in jail, they were not being killed or martyred, they would be later, but not here. Um, they were suffering persecution socially, economically, culturally, and their survival felt very tenuous. And Peter will go on to write lots of really great advice on how to be a Christian in a hostile culture and how Christianity and culture mix. Um, but that's not how he starts. What does he say first? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. He speaks to a group of slaves who are suffering persecution, uh, wives who are suffering oppression and abuse from unbelieving husbands, uh, from people who have been ostracized and kicked out of their families. And he's beginning with blessing. He's beginning by taking time to praise God for their salvation, their new birth, which has not at all been affected by their circumstance. It is safe. It is secure. They're in her in eternal inheritance. How safe is their inheritance? It is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. And we, by God's power, are being guarded through faith for a future salvation. Uh, Peter goes on to explain God's purpose for their suffering, various trials, and so that includes all the things that we face today. I'm so thankful that he uses that phrase, various trials while also assuring them of their ultimate deliverance. In this, you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. See how the apostle, he puts our sufferings, he acknowledges it, he names it, but he puts it in its proper proportion. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Why? So that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So that at the end of time, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Later in chapter 1, Right when you think Peter's about to start giving practical advice, what does he say? First Peter 1 Peter 1.13, therefore, okay, so now what do we do? Preparing your minds for action, being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It takes Peter a long time to get to his first command word, his first imperative verb. And what is it? Hope. That's the first command that he offers to this struggling church. The first piece of advice. And not just that, he says, set your hope fully 
on future grace, the future coming of Jesus Christ. In moments like these, when undergoing trials of various kinds, the first command we're given, our first step of obedience is exclusive hope. We're invited to confess our confidence in God, to declare that God is God and we are not, and that whatever today looks like, eternity is secure. And our hope is set way out in the future, uh, so far out that it is safely beyond my reach. I can't tamper with it. I can't mess it up. It's too far out. And that gives me confidence, a confidence which sets me free and empowers my obedience. So it's a quick walkthrough of these texts. And I, I think it's important today, as we're planting our churches, Sanctuary Citizens, the Church of San Francisco, um, it's helpful to remember that none of the churches that Paul and Peter planted still exist, organizationally. But the church exists and will exist forever. The Galatian church, the Ephesian church, the Corinthian church, they are long gone as institutional entities. And likewise, in 2,000 more years, there will be no citizens church, right? There will be no more sanctuary church, but there will still be the church. No matter what happens, we can be confident in that. And that's an important starting place for us when we remember when we participate in the work of church planting. Now, of course, our churches are only here because of the churches Peter and Paul planted. If they had not planted those churches, we would not be here. We would be lost and without hope. Citizens and sanctuary are institutions within the San Franciscan church because of the early church's faithfulness and sacrifice in their times and places. And in the same way, our church's faithfulness is significant for future generations. What we do contributes to the spread of the gospel and redemption of people. And it will continue having an effect until Jesus comes again. Our confidence in God and in eternity does not mean that what we do doesn't matter. It just means, blissfully, that the mattering is already settled. And that's really the best of all possible worlds. Because I get to participate in the joy of obedience, taking up our cross and following Jesus, armed with the knowledge that resurrection lies on the other side. No matter what I do, there is nothing that I can do to mess that up. We're just one small God-ordained step on the irreversible path to the full and complete restoration of all things. It's going to happen full stop. Again, notice that our confidence is set far off into the future, as far off as we can get, really. And that's vitally important when we engage in church planning because it keeps my future safe from me. I can't mess it up. My confidence is in God's hand. It's not in me, and it's definitely not in a church plan. Um, I brought with me this morning uh, the original prospectus I made when I moved to San Francisco in 2014 for King's Cross Church. Uh, you might be asking, what's King's Cross Church? That's the church I first planted in 2015 
before merging with Citizens in 2017. Uh, but King's Cross is no more. Uh, and Citizens, I think, includes just one person besides me and Maggie um, who were a part of that original church plant. Um, and the thing is, I got so many compliments on this prospectus. <laughs> it's like thorough, it, um, compelling, the best they'd ever seen. Like a few people told me not. <laughs> but it's completely wrong. <laughs> like embarrassingly wrong. I pulled it out and then I was telling Maggie because I look at this timeline. And year five, so it's just so pretty. Look at it. <laughs> and I made it. Um, so year one, apprentice and gather. Year two, launch church. Year three, grow and develop leaders. Year four, multiply ministries. Year five, multiply churches. That would have been 2019. Multiply churches. Maggie, Maggie I was recounting this, and she was like, we didn't actually say that, did we? No. Um, that's so embarrassing. Um, but yeah, we did. And I'd like to blame COVID, but this year five would have been before COVID. So I can't blame COVID on it, right? My hope cannot be in my church plant and in my plans and in my strategies because they are completely wrong. If I had gone through, not only was it pretentious of me and prideful, um, to lay it out like that. Um, there are so many things that happened, COVID obviously in 2020, but there's a lot of hardship and tragedy that happened that I didn't know. I wasn't expecting like antidepressants to be in year three, but that was there that I had to figure out first time in my life. There was so much hardship and difficulty, but that's okay because my hope is not in my church plants. It is not in me. It is kept safe in eternity, undefiled, unfading, imperishable. There is nothing I do, there is nothing members can do, there is nothing this city can do to mess with that. I am secure and safe. Now, that is not how I felt when I moved here. My hope was so much in this. I thought that this was what God wanted for me. But God kindly and graciously orchestrated my circumstances in hard, hard ways to remind me where my hope truly lies. It's not in me. It's in him, and he continues to do that. And when it comes to church, it feels like a semi-annual basis. That that's what church planting does for me. It reminds me that my confidence is not in me. It is not in now. It is in God and eternity. How do we know when our confidence shifts? When your hope and your faith slips from the far-off future to some nearer outcome, when that happens, anxiety tends to creep in. That's a good tell, right? And that's because God didn't promise me anything short of eternity. And so when I suddenly think that he's promised me this, some, this thing that's closer, but he's not doing it, 
And so to make that happen, when he doesn't want it to happen, I apparently have to step up and pick up the slack where God has not doing it. And so I begin to play the role of God in life and in church leadership. Uh, it reminds me of the Jim Carrey movie, Bruce Almighty, when he became God for a day or a week. I can't remember the story. But if you remember the scene when all the prayers start flooding in from around the world and it's beyond his ability, right? And we're not even close to listening to all the prayers of the world. But that sense of being overwhelmed, I feel like this when I'm just dealing with my own needs, my own family, my own church, my own ministry and calling, right? Where there is this sense of being overwhelmed by competing noises. Even when we're talking about one thing, there's so much going on as we talked about at the beginning. How we just finished the high school application process for my oldest, and some of y'all know what of a mess that is in San Francisco, and Maggie and I were completely overwhelmed by all the factors. And I don't normally do this, I'm not this kind of person, but I made a spreadsheet with 15 different options of where my kids could end up in school and how each option affected their academics and our finances and our pace of life and Maggie's vocation and all this stuff. It was crazy and it was overwhelming. And uh, similarly, as you guys plan for the future, there's a lot going on. And so you're going to be making some spreadsheets, right? Like you're going to be doing those things, trying to bring those factors under control um, you're reacting not only as members, but as leaders responsible for sanctuary, um, but individuals with unique tasks. And uh, again, you should make spreadsheets. You should journal. You should put it on paper. Um, but you know, and I know, that try as we might, as human beings, we just can't be God. We can't handle all the layers of any given situation. It's literally beyond us. Only God can hold those details. But in important moments like that, we're tempted to play God. And I am tempted to play God. Our confidence in him wanes, and so we shore it up with our own efforts. Um, during the school application process, I had to regularly pull back and repent from obsessive anxiety. As helpful as the spreadsheet was, as important as it was for me to do, I found myself trying to force God's hand. When our confidence shifts from our eternal future to some future not promised by God, we try to become God. Uh, we go after omniscience. And so we try to see all the angles, right? We think and think and think and think everything through as if we could choose the only best and right strategy without faith. We attempt omnipresence as church leaders, as church members, believing the importance of the situation requires us to be everywhere, at everything, pleasing everyone, neglecting our own limits and rest. And so we, like God, are going to uh, be imminent in every space. And most dangerous of all, we're tempted to try omnipotence, manipulating and forcing outcomes in others that are not ours to force, and becoming abusive leaders. And not only is this sinful, not only is that stressful, incredibly stressful to try to be God, it actually will lead to poor decisions. Which is why this confidence in God and eternity is so important to a church plan. Not just to like, so that we make it through with peace, but so that we do what God wants us to do. Without it, we are bound to make bad decisions or miss opportunities because then without confidence, all our vision casting and strategizing is being carried out with anxiety and pride. And no one makes good decisions from anxiety and pride. Our decisions are skewed. 
Anxious leadership will make us do things that are not helpful, and it will keep us from seeing other things that are helpful. But when we carry with us confidence in God and our eternal future, we actually see the world differently. We see it rightly. Confidence is not just how we endure emotionally, though that definitely helps. Faith in God is essential to decision-making. It helps us navigate change wisely. Trusting God and eternity becomes our north star. It's how we tune our instruments at the beginning of our meetings, at the beginnings of our prayers, our minds and bodies and hearts. Confidence becomes the starting place for vision casting. Confidence not in ourselves, not in our predictive abilities, but in God and eternity. I don't know if you remember the first Lego movie. It was a favorite of my kids when they were younger. It's a great film, if you haven't seen it. It really is funny. Um, But if you remember the main character, Emmett, he becomes a Lego master. And then he starts to see things and just put things together. And before he was a master, he could only build things if he had the instruction manual, right? And he only built things exactly by the book. But once he was set free from the burden of the law, suddenly he starts seeing opportunities for building everywhere. He just sees all these pieces that come together in beautiful, wonderful, helpful ways. And that's what confidence in God and eternity unlocks in us, an ability to live and love with freedom, which is why it's so essential for the church. First uh, John describes Christian confidence like this, as our sister uh, sung to us this morning. There is no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. Last week, Tom preached on the importance of a culture of grace, and one of the implications of grace is confidence. It follows naturally from grace, because if I've done nothing to earn my salvation, then there's nothing I can do to unlearn it, unearn it, I have no reason to fear my own failure, and so I'm willing to try things. On top of that, if salvation is the work of God, then it's eternally secure. I have no reason to fear others. They can't separate me from the love of God, and so might as well go for it. I'm free. There's a lightness that I can move about the world with. It creates in me a confidence which results in fearless love. I'm no longer concerned about my own salvation because it's safe in Christ. I'm no longer concerned about the salvation of my church because that's not my job. I'm no longer concerned about my own survival because death has been defeated. I'm no longer concerned about my reputation because God loves me and has imputed Christ's righteousness to me. My reputation is just fine. As Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, consider the lilies, consider the birds. Does not your Father love you more than they? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all those things will be added to you. Perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment. The one who has been loved first, which is another way of saying the one who has been loved graciously without giving anything. The one who has been loved first, that person cannot be afraid I'm not afraid of doing the wrong thing. I'm not afraid of death. I can live with confidence in God who keeps his promises, and that makes me free. And it's important that we be churches marked by confident freedom. 2 Corinthians 3, 17, Now this Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. 
Uh, this is why I encourage us to have a humble, hopeful, happy, and playful confidence in God. When you recognize that your hope is secure, it puts a lightness over life. There's a happiness that comes and a playfulness, a willingness to sort of try things out. What could go wrong? Nothing. <laughs> Literally, nothing could ultimately go wrong. And so we have so much room to play as children of God. Our confidence is humble and hopeful when we remember that whatever happens, God is in control. My future is secure. We have this ministry by the mercy of God so we don't lose heart. And our confidence becomes happy and playful when we experience the freedom we have in Christ. And that leads to flexibility and creativity, which will be so important at this moment in your churches and in every church all the time, right? And you as individuals, where you're really wondering, man, what is the Lord doing? This is not what I would have done, but what is he doing? I don't know. Let's see. What is God doing at Sanctuary? What is he doing in the Shaw's life? What is he doing in my life? Will the church stay the same? Will it change? Is God inviting us to adjust our vision and mission? Is he asking us to shift our focus for a season? Is he asking us to slow down? Probably. How does all this play into the wider spiritual landscape of San Francisco? How does this play into the spiritual landscape of you? What is God doing in your heart? What is he stirring in you? How is he moving you towards greater confidence in him and in your ultimate future with him? There are hundreds of questions like that, and I don't know the answer, and you don't either. But what I do know is that God exists and he is good to those who diligently seek him. I know that for a fact. What I do know is that Christ died and rose again on the third day, forgiving sin and defeating death, turning death from a villain into a gardener. Some poet said that, I can't remember who, not me. What I do know is that my salvation comes by grace through faith in Christ, not of works, not through church planting. My salvation does not come through that. Accurate timelines. I know that I am forever a child of God, and my inheritance in Christ is in heaven, undefiled, unfading, imperishable, kept in heaven by God for me and that nothing can separate me from the love of God. Not, uh, not anything. No matter what happens in the in-between, those things will never, ever change. We can bet our lives on it. We can bet our churches on it, that God is good to those who seek him. And so in this next season, let that be the main thing you do is we're just seeking after God. We're just following him wherever he takes us, knowing that the road might be winding, but it's going to the same place, and that place is good, and that place is with Jesus. Let's pray. Dear Father, we are so thankful for your gospel 
a salvation by grace through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. We're also thankful for your faithfulness to remind us of that and use our circumstances to bring us back 